Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, um, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and I am delighted today to have another host from New Books in Psychoanalysis, um, Jordan Osterman, uh, joining us. Um, For those of you who um, have been listening to the podcast in the last month, you will have already heard uh, Jordan uh, be interviewed. Um, so he's very popular around here. Not only is he a host, but we've now, in, this is, will be his second interview for, in fact, a, a entirely separate um, publication. Today we'll be speaking um, with him about his book, Circumcision on the Couch The Cultural, Psychological, and Gendered Dimensions of the World's Oldest Surgery. Um, and uh, so before we, we sort of bring uh, Jordan's here on the line, and uh, but I want to introduce him a little more formally. Um, uh, he's um, a PhD, Dr. Osterman, a, a lecturer in the Department of Psychosocial and Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex in the UK, and he's also a clinical trainee with the Site for Contemporary Psychoanalysis located in London. Um, His research interests include uh, medical humanities, the Lacanian tradition of psychoanalysis, left-wing politics, and gender sexuality studies. Um, uh, He's also, um, he's published in Radical Philosophy, Transgender Studies Quarterly, Viewpoint, Tribune Magazine. And in fact, in the most recent interview was for um, a journal that he co-edited with uh, Hannah Wallerstein and the psychoanalytic study of the child on the subject of transgender children. So, um, Jordan, hi. Glad to have you here. (laughs) Hi, Tracy. (laughs) It's so so nice to be back. Um, And and just to reassure you and my fellow hosts, although I'm thrilled to be in this position of interviewee, I am I am going to be returning as host as well. I'm not just uh, <laughs> occupying this one seat, oh, but I have yeah, yeah, interviews yeah, lined up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've done it right. No, 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 we'll we'll hold you to that because we look forward to more of your of your interviews as well. Um, so I'm going to start. I mean, you know, normally I ask a question: what motivated the writing of this book? But I I have to get some, I have to say something first, which was this book was so uncomfortable. I was fidgeting. There's not the book itself, but the subject matter. I noticed I was very, I was fidgety, 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 <laughs> and I I just found that I mean just just the circumcision itself. I was like I don't want to think about this. I can't. Oh my god, this is difficult to think about. This is difficult, you know, to to sort of visualize, to think it through, and yet page after page after page, <laughs> there's a lot to there's a tremendous amount to think about, and you. Uh, what's so interesting is you sort of, uh, it's circumcision 360 degree view. Um, as far as I could tell, there was a, you know, a lot of, um, I mean, you, you, you come, (laughs) you come at this, uh, at the cut, um, in from so from so many different uh, so many different directions, but anyway, I will ask you the question, you know, why, why, why write about why, what, what, this, (laughs) what, what drove you to, um, to take up uh, circumcision and yeah. create a book. Thank, thank you for that. And I have to say, you're not the first person who's told me that the book or the idea of circumcision, you know, made them a bit uncomfortable, whether, yeah. you know, discussing it at a dinner party, or um, I think I mentioned to you <clears throat> quite a, a prominent uh, figure in feminist psychoanalysis that I had hoped would be a reviewer for an earlier version of the project had said something along the lines of, I can't bear to read this many words about circumcision. Um, <laughs> it's unbearable. It's sort of, in a way, I, I was thinking, it reminds me also of uh, like conversations about menopause. You talk about menopause, like between women, you can tell a woman who's 30 what menopause is like, but when she enters menopause, it's as if she's never encountered these words because there's such a, there's kind of like a, it struck me as there, there's like a parallel, like a, like a blinding, like you don't want to see, you can't just sit down and think about circumcision. Yeah. Um, it's, well, it's tough. In a way, I mean, that is in some sense, maybe what motivated me to write the book as well is I, I had this experience, which I write about in the introduction of encountering as a, as a teenager, actually encountering a sort of early form of anti-male circumcision activism, which as I talk about in the book goes under the name intactivism, as in activism for intactness. 
And I was maybe 16 or 17 at the time. And as an American and as a Jew, I, I, I just, I never really thought about circumcision. I kind of took it for granted as just something that was done. And I hadn't really, you know, thought to investigate its meaning. And of course, people said it's more hygienic and this and that. Um, but the fact that there were people who were really up in arms protesting this made me think, okay, well, there must be something to it. Um, maybe something I haven't thought about. And, you know, I was I was skeptical, as I am in the book, about their arguments, but I felt like there must be something about the level of pathos behind this sort of movement, which has since sort of gained steam, um, that, that might be interesting to look into. And then it was from there, I mean, it, it then just became kind of like almost a passing fancy. I, I was doing a program in psychoanalytic studies and I thought maybe I'll write a paper about this. And then once I started to dig into it and sort of realize, as you were saying, you know, you can do a kind of 360 view and learn so much about so many different kind of fundamental topics to, you know, questions about what it means to be a human, questions about Western civilization. Like I, I realized it was actually a sort of, um, prism through which you could really explore a lot of stuff that I'm quite interested in. So that's sort of how it it sort of took shape and just kept growing and growing until it became uh, a book. Right, right, right. Yeah, there are there's so many different sort of there's so many different ways to slice it. Okay, I had to say that. All right, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so many different puns you can make on the right, theme it's, of it's, cutting. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's just it's yeah 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 yeah. But you ask. Um, uh, there's some there's moments in the book where you ask a question here and there that I'm like oh right what like it's very like the questions are in and of themselves kind of so um basic and yet so previously unthinkable you ask what makes this cultural practice compelling enough to adopt to which I I add the question why the penis and not the ear like what <laughs> I mean like what and and you you know you you endeavor to explore like the unconscious, the unconscious reasons for this practice, you know, which is moving beyond like, well, this is, you know, about ident- an identity, a religious, you know, belonging to a religious group, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you, you say even, you know, even Jews who like eat bacon say, oh no, but I'm going to definitely, my son will be, will be circumcised. So there's something greater, um, larger than, than I think you're saying something beyond beyond the the sort of pedestrian understanding of well it's a religious you know it's a re- religious right i mean can can you can you talk to us about that this the the more than the religious um you know what draws yeah. us to it yeah i mean i suppose i don't have a single answer but i you're absolutely right in picking up that you know the the kind of commonplace answers that circulate i'm not convinced by so um it was bruno bettelheim asked this question as well. And his point was, so there are lots of, it's, it's, it's one of the oldest known surgical procedures. There's lots of ancient civilizations and indigenous tribes that have practiced it. Some of them, you know, without ever having made contact with each other. So, so one of the questions is like, how does it just, you know, how does someone get this crazy idea to, to perform a circumcision as a, as a kind of rite of passage? And then even when, cultures have had contact with each other, that you still have to ask the question, well, why would this be something compelling for one culture to take from another? Um, and I mean, I guess one of the things I think, um, and, and looking at some of the sort of anthropological literature around it, is it does seem to have something to do with a sort of fundamental question or um, issue around sexual difference, around the fact of needing to humans having some kind of need to physically mark um, in some way the difference between the sexes like that it, it doesn't nature doesn't do a good enough job um, and uh, <clears throat> at the same time there's something very ambiguous about circumcision in terms of sexual difference because on the one hand it's often in sort of ancient um, rituals a a symbolic thing that turns a boy into a man when it's used as a rite of passage. But on the other hand, um, it's often thought of as something that that's feminizing. Um, and there's all kinds of uh, symbolic links that get made between circumcision and the blood of circumcision and menstrual blood. Um, and there's all kinds of anti-Semitic fantasies. If you look at um, 
some of the uh, fantasies that were circulating in kind of um, turn of the century Vienna um, around Jews being somehow lesser than and, and feminized Jewish men as a result of their circumcision. So there's this weird paradoxical thing where it seems intimately connected with this uniquely human need to um, mark in somehow the, the difference between male and female. And at the same time, it kind of blurs the difference as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a point that you return to throughout the book is the um, tremendous amount of ambivalence, right? That sort of, um, you know, embedded in, in the practice. Is, it, is the foreskin feminizing? Is having a foreskin masculinizing? Is not having a foreskin more masculinizing? Like that, that there's a way in which, again, all these incredible, like this, the act of circumcision is so, oh, it's, it's polyvalent. It's open to so many different interpretations. You can make of it, it's interesting, you can make of it what you want. You know? Yeah, it's like, exactly. And, I mean, it, and it kind of plays out at, at both cultural levels and at the level of, you know, if you look at psychoanalytic case studies of men who had issues with their circumcision, you know, it's it's playing out at all these different levels, this, this weird, intense um, ambivalence around it. And I guess just what, one other thing I'd say, because this is a sort of, you know, it has a Lacanian focus, the book, is I also think this whole issue of the cut, you know, it's, it's a way of looking at the of the cut in psychoanalysis and the relationship between the cut and sexuality. Right. I think you, there's a quote that I pulled out. It brings the sexual organ into a system of human organization by removing something from it. Sort of, you know, that, that, that there's something to be content, there's something to be thought about, but yet there's something to be thought about in encountering circumcision. And yet there's something that we're also describing like the, you know, the feminist analyst who said, no, I can't, I can't do this. My experience of I couldn't think, uh, uh, you know, I couldn't think so easily um, about circumcision, but it it demands thought and it blocks something about it also upends thought. I mean, that that's, it, it's sort of, it's sort of this, this unthinkable, um, and yet it's a, a taken, I mean, in, from the, from, you know, sitting here in New York city, it's like, you know, it's quite taken for granted, um, that, you know, most American men of a certain age are, are, are circumcised, but it's not, it's just like, 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 I guess it's like a failure to like be able to, it's difficult to mentalize yet it asks for mentalization at the same time. Um, yeah. Um, I was interested in, um, uh, you have a chapter um, on uh, sort of a conversation about um, Saul to Paul, um, about Badiou and, and Boyerin. And I, I was wondering if you could, I thought uh, that chapter, I was like, did he publish this someplace? I didn't do that. It, it's such a great freestanding, you know, like on its own kind of piece. Um I want. I guess I. I wanted. You know, there's a lot about it that I understood. There's aspects of it that I didn't understand. I thought I should just read the but you. I should read the but. But I don't have the time. But you're both these two. You know, contemporary thinkers come at circumcision from very different ways, and yet you say that they end up sharing, uh, in some way, sharing a um, or an embrace of of what's, what are you saying with a femininity of something feminizing? Can you, can you talk about, you know, this, the, the convert, the sort of side by side conversation that these two authors didn't have, but that you created, um, between. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I like how you put that, the conversation they didn't have, but that I tried to create. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. So that was a chapter, I mean, uh, that I did write as an article separately. And it was a slightly, um, I should say the whole book initially started as a PhD dissertation and sort of developed since then. But um, that chapter was sort of put together in the first year of writing the, the, the dissertation form. And I was in this, I just got totally sucked in to the world of St. Paul and Pauline theology and early Christianity and all this stuff. Maybe I spent a bit too much time on it because then when I stepped back, I was like, okay, I have all this other stuff I need to work on now. But but it was, I, I hope it, it, it's definitely the most theoretically dense chapter. I hope it's, um, you know, still interesting. But um, it was basically what it circulated around was um, St. Paul is, is famous in a certain sense for having 
emphasized the importance of what he referred to as circumcision of the heart rather than circumcision of the flesh. Um, And the idea is that uh, in order to belong to this new movement of people who understood themselves as Jews at the time, but were following Jesus, you no longer needed to get physically circumcised or, and that was sort of used as a symbol for you no longer need to follow any of the laws traditionally associated with Judaism because in this new movement, it's about it's about the spirit. It's about circumcision of the spirit, which is a kind of different thing. It's no longer a physical marker of identity. Um, and so that's the kind of religious context. And then that's been taken up by, by various theorists to say something more general and kind of political about universalism and the idea of belonging. And like this debate over whether Paul opened up this new form of belonging in which everyone could be a part of something without having to have some kind of mark like circumcision or that was the one side. And that's, I use Badiou as the one who really elaborates this kind of the best. Um, and then the other side, and I use this, um, uh, this scholar, Daniel Boyarin as a, who articulates another, an oppositional side to this in which his argument is actually this move by St. Paul is in a way what sets up the kind of suppression of Jewish difference. It, it basically says, you know, circumcision no longer matters. And that's the first step towards saying, actually, Jews are a problem um, because they persist in this ritual that they should no longer practice, really. Um, so I look at both of them, I compare them side to side, and I kind of try and draw out all of all of the interesting stuff that's happening around circumcision. And then, as you were saying, I, um, I tried to, I reached this conclusion that, in a sense, I think both of them are still still share some kind of um, idea of some form of belonging or collectivity or whatever you want to call it that isn't about in-group versus out-group, something that's genuinely inclusive. <clears throat> and they have different ways of reaching that conclusion. And I think um, I then draw on some of the Lacanian stuff around sexuation and this idea of feminine sexuation and there's been work by theorists like Todd McGowan and Joan Kopchak and others who basically tried to say that when Lacan did this very complicated sort of math theme around um, the feminine, not all, that you can understand that as him saying something about um, what it means to be a woman, but also that it it sets up a way of thinking about a form of belonging that is not related to who's in and who's out. And it's not about basically who has it and who doesn't, which is the sort of male form, but a sort of shared experience of everyone lacking in some sense, everyone not fully having it. Um, And I kind of try and draw on that to say, I think actually both Badiou and Boyerin, who I compared to one another, have a shared investment in this idea, even if they have different ideas about what circumcision means. And then finally, that maybe the reason they have these different ideas about circumcision and what it means is because circumcision is this very ambivalent procedure that can be thought of as, as masculine or feminine. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of weaving together these different theories around sexual difference and circumcision and, and universalism um, in that chapter. There's a, I think uh, I have a note here, the universal is what particulars share in not having, which um, I'm not sure if you wrote that or I wrote that or if that's what I, <laughs> that's what I took from from the chapter. I was like, oh, and there's something about you know, really, really, very thought provoking. Um, I think and that it, comes from from Todd McGowan actually. That is was that McGowan? His, okay. Yeah, because he's got a book on universalism where he kind of. He makes that case, and he says. I was supposed to interview me- him on that. Uh oh, okay. bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Haven't done it yet. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and he says something really interesting as well about how, you know, um, what what it, the thing that Nazis actually hated about the Jews was, in his view, not their particularity, but actually the universality of the Jews. So he has this line that, um, according to the fancy proffered by key Nazi figures. Jews have no distinct racial identity of their own, but are parasitical on other races. For them, Jewishness is not a race, but a non-race, which gives it its universalist hue. So it's this idea of actually not belonging, not having something that that Todd says is the universal. Um, And that's what's so threatening to people who want to eliminate difference, really, is this idea of the not belonging. Right, 
right, right, right. And then and thinking about the intactivists and the fantasy of completion um, of you know sort of paradise, this kind of paradise loss, rather than contending with um, what's what's missing um, and 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 humanizing about us all. We're all suffering from something that's missing, and in that we. Um, there's certainly a universal. It, there, there could you could take that as a universal. Like we're all suffering from what we what we're missing, <laughs> and and I I feel I feel for you and your quest to to you know overcome that. But uh, I also uh, know you're going to fail. So and I'm failing. I'm failing right along. I'm failing right along with you. You know, <laughs> it's really. Yeah, is it like the the intact is very painful. Like to read, I was like, gosh, you know, this is a lot of this is a lot of suffering over over what over a loss that you don't know because it's a pre-edible, a pre-verbal, it's a pre pre early gen, generally circumcision is an early life experience. Um, you're missing something that you almost never had. Um, if not, you know, day eight, for instance, that you almost never had before, certainly before mentalization. It's actually, it, you know, um, you write something, I, I think maybe this is in the, the, the you know, sort of the final chapter and sort of, uh, you write, when undergone in infancy, it concerns a period of time we don't remember, a period when we were absolutely vulnerable and dependent on others. And you also write it as a foundational anxiety-provoking mystery, the obscurity of our past and the uncertain impact that others have made on us, that circumcision puts in brutal relief. And maybe that's why we can't think about it. You know, maybe that's why there's sort of a blank, a blank, uh, a blankness um, at times, um, because it is often from a, a period in life that um, we we can't we, we we experience, but we find it hard to find the words. Um, yeah, I think so. And then I, I mean, I, you're, I think you're really right. I, I like how you, I really appreciate how you picked up on. Um, on that, you know, the way that it kind of can be this perfect culprit, that's sort of what I'm trying to say, because it's from this unthinkable period of life. And then I guess I would add that I do think it gets an extra kind of charge or people are more likely to get upset about it nowadays, because I, I think we do live, at least speaking from the, you know, I guess a sort of Western perspective in a time in which we are expected to have control over everything in our life. And the idea of vulnerability is is very threatening. Um, and so it, I think that helps kind of power the fears around it even more. Well, you know, that brings to mind another question, which is that an, one way that I read this book was that it's really a, a um, uh, it's a book about circumcision, but it's a book that has, has a, a very, um, uh, sort of not when I say soft, I mean like soft and not pointed, but consistent critique of, of neoliberalism. And I was like, Oh, this book is also doing, uh, is all, is also kind of pushing at, uh, you know, at the, the sadness, the, the, the real sadness of neoliberal living. Um, and I, I don't know if that is a is, is a read that I just added, or is that something that you would say was kind of? I uh, know I think you're totally you're absolutely right. I'm glad you detected that, but it is kind of. I think it grew as I was working on the project, as well as I became increasingly left wing, kind of witnessing the tragedy of our you know current circumstances. That you know my the political element of it became bigger and bigger. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's exactly that, the kind of, I guess this, the way that in some sense, I think intactivists, along with all kinds of people who have their sort of pet issue, you could call it, including conspiracy theorists and everything else. I don't want to say they're the same, but they might have some similarities. I think they are right to say something is wrong with, with the world and with the way that I'm raised and you know something is up. Um, but in my view, they're kind of pointing at the wrong problem um, because the problem isn't necessarily a single individual who's pulling the strings or, you know, the mother who's subjecting you to circumcision or whatever else the fancy might be. But it's it's the state of the society we live in and the and particularly the neoliberal capitalist economy that we're living under. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the sadness um, that, you know, uh, thinking about like the intactivist, I'm like, you know, got, you're sort of identifying against your own best interests. Like, what about, you know, like, how does, like, like this, really? Is this, is this what you want to talk about? You know, um, I, you know, th- like, aren't you more deeply impacted by, by things that impact, you know, your, your, your daily life, the air you breathe, the, you know, the, the food you eat, the way in which you do or do not relate to, you know, to other people. Um, anyway, I mean, I just, I felt very sad thinking about, about, you know, you know, turning to, um, turning to, you know, the loss of the foreskin as the answer. Um, but, but I guess that that leads into something else. Um, I was thinking about your, um, although the book is very much so guided by Lacan, you also bring in um, La Planche, and you kind of work to create another relationship between these two, um, I think. And I'm wondering, you know, in, in like what, you know, speaking of the enigmatic message, right, and cir- circumcision, you know, bef- if it's you know, done early in life, it's like a, a real confrontation with with, a, with a, actually a material expression of, 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 <laughs> of an enigmatic, but perhaps an enigmatic or not so enigmatic message. Um, yeah, do you, would you... I mean, I just, I felt you, when, when you moved toward La Planche, I was like, oh, here, this, this is, this is interesting. And, um, it doesn't always work with Lacan, I don't think, but I think you're trying, you know, so I think some people would say, you know, you can't mix these two things up, but you're, but yeah, you, I was told that definitely. You were definitely was, told that, right? <laughs> yeah, I was definitely pushed on that issue and how can you, you know, there is language, the condition of the unconscious or is like, you know, there's a whole you know, dividing line supposedly, but I, I just, and you, you went with ambivalence. It. You, you stick with <laughs> yeah. it. You stay with ambivalence through the whole book. Right. So you, so you, yeah. Can you say more about, you know, your, your, utilize your sort of, um, admixture of, of the Lacan and, uh, and La Planche and, and how you understand how you, you were using them both to think about, um, yeah, circumcision. sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I just really like La Planche to, to off the bat. I think, you know, even though I, I am really influenced by Lacan, I felt when I first started reading La Planche that he really, I, I find that in some ways they're quite compatible. I feel that when reading La Planche, you get a bit more of a kind of narrative, like exegetical explanation of what Lacan would call castration with the idea of the enigmatic signifier. And particularly, I'm really taken by his account of this idea that the parent in the way that they um, take care of the child, they're sort of, um, you know, that there's something sexual, unconsciously sexual um, in the process of breastfeeding, of caressing, of caring, of all of that. Um, But that it's not a positive sexual message. It's an unconscious enigmatic message. The meaning of it is unclear, but the child receives something extra from the parent and that sets in place the drive and that sets in place the unconscious and the the sexuality of the child is a reaction to this enigma that it receives from the parent. So I think it's helpful. It's it's a almost a developmental account, um, although it's not kind of chronological, but it, it helps you think about like what what is why is sexuality so important in psychoanalysis and how does it work? Um, and also, I think it's really useful for. Um, Laplanche is basically looking at the early history of Freud and at Freud's seduction theory, um, which as maybe most listeners, listeners will know, maybe not all, you know, Freud initially had this idea that the cause of a neurosis was what he called a seduction, what we would now call an abuse by an adult, um, onto a child and Laplanche said, and then, and Freud does away with that theory, but Laplanche says, hang on, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, so Freud does recognize, of course, that abuse does happen and that it has traumatic consequences, and we don't need to go into that debate. But Laplanche says, actually, there's also a generalized seduction that all children undergo, which is not about uh, sexual abuse, but it is to do with this this unconscious sexuality that the adult enigmatically communicates to the child. So I really like that idea. I think it's quite compelling. And when it came to looking at it in this book, I mean... I do it in the context of actually looking at how circumcision became a medical procedure in the first place. 
Um, and as, as you know, there's these quite strange case studies, which I dug up, of um, physicians and surgeons who were dealing with boys that had unexplainable medical symptoms. And, and they believe that these symptoms were due to masturbation or due to some kind of premature sexuality. And they believe that circumcision would relieve them of these symptoms. Um, and so in, in over two chapters, I'm kind of looking at what's going on there. How does it relate to Freud's early ideas about sexuality and about neurosis? Um, and then basically I try and say, in a sense, like Freud and these circumcision doctors, as I'm calling them, were both interested in this idea of infantile sexuality or sexuality before it's, a, it's understood typically to occur. But somehow Freud came to this conclusion that um, indeed infantile sexuality has something to do with neurosis, but the way to deal with it is not by surgery, but by talking. And these circumcision doctors came to a very different conclusion, which was you need to you need to perform circumcisions to, to basically cut out this inappropriate form of sexuality. And I feel that Laplanche helps me kind of excavate in some way Freud's thinking and make a bit more sense of it and help me understand how did Freud um, kind of enter into similar terrain, but reach a very different conclusion about the role of sexuality in the child than these circumcision doctors who were basically sort of typical Victorians. Right, right. The oophorectomy, and you know, circumcision and oophorectomy, you know, will do. Um, this, this should this should take care of the problem, and maybe a little bed rest. But I don't know if the boys were encouraged to have exactly. bed rest. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> bed rest like, or exercise or whatever it was. You know. yeah. right, right. Run, run in the fields. You know, get out <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, to remove this this idea that the foreskin is irritating. You know that it, it's that it's like that that uh, that. Um, you know that a, that a per, that a person born with the penis experiences uh, irritation um, uh, naturally, and that and there's an, an, an innocence. Excess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's seen as an excess, and it's also there's an in it. Like, well, you, you don't get to choose. You know, everyone's born with this, so the sexuality is. Um, it's like the body is doing something to the to the uh, to the little boy, let's say, um, rather than the little boy is doing something to his body. It's like an it's, it's a maintenance of you know sort of uh, childhood innocence to some degree, um, and an attempt to um, to you know. Right. It, it, I mean, it seems to me an attempt to, to negate the idea of infantile or childhood um, sexuality. Um, it's just the body made me do it. Um, and, yeah. there's... And, and then, I mean, the, the perversity of it is that the more you try to do that, the more you end up sexualizing the child and ending up in this, you know, quite, quite strange relationship where you're like, you see the sexuality in the child and then you, like, I, I have some examples of the imagery is quite graphic, but one doctor who basically explains how you need to make the, the you need to physically get the child a bit erect in order to perform the circumcision. Um, you know, it's quite a disturbing thing to think about. And it shows in a way, I think the kind of perversity that's involved in this idea of trying to restore the innocence of the child. And then I go into Henry James and the turn of the screw as well as another example of, you know, that being brought out in literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, uh, Jack, I think that you make um, use of some of uh, Jacqueline Rose's work, and was from Peter Pan. What from? I forget which. Yeah, some of some of her work as well. Um, and um, so we're talking about just for the listeners. I mean, it's interesting. I had not ever read the the term reflex theory, and I feel like I've read a lot about hysteria and about like you know from feminist. Uh, historians and and you know literary critics stuff from like the 80s and 90s and I encountered this term reflex theory um, which is uh, was the terminology used by these um, circumcision uh, doctors um, it almost doesn't I I, it, it doesn't land with me. I'm like, why is it reflex theory? I, I, do you, I mean, do you have thoughts about about the the, the devel- their development or their use of this? Yeah, so it is, um, yeah, it's a kind of forgotten medical concept, but it was used to justify all kinds of surgeries. And um, it just comes out of the theory of the reflexes, but taken to a much more kind of phantasmatical degree. So 
there's, uh, you know, the early observation that there's a reflex system in the body, you know, we're all familiar with the doctor kind of hitting your knee and making your leg kind of twitch. Um, but it that was then expanded into this idea that there's a kind of reflex action uh, throughout the nerves that if one part of the body is irritated, that can cause all kinds of symptoms in another part of the body. So irritation is also a big term in all of this. And um, it's a term that Freud and Charcot were also familiar with. So I, I give some examples of how they, uh, you know, cite that term. They kind of acknowledge some of the ideas around it. Um, and I think uh, it, it, it's possible that Freud could have ended up as just another reflex theorist. Essentially, that's my kind of maybe more provocative claim. If he hadn't had the very good idea of... Um, focusing particularly on speech and on memory as these aspects of a person's suffering that um, can't be reduced to physiology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You bring up um, a, uh, I think it, you're referencing um, the work of um, Bonamy, the the cut, right, with this idea of that that what's been cordoned off or sort of less highlighted or less or made less use of is is Freud's early um work in a clinic with what who was it a Bajins I don't know how you say the name yeah, Adolf Baginski I think Baginski? That's how you say it. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, and could you talk to us about that I thought that was really uh, very um very very stimulating actually yeah, <laughs> speaking of I reflexes think... yeah <laughs> yeah Bonomi did some really fascinating research there and he was actually interviewed on on new books um i think about think about that book um yeah so basically he showed that uh freud worked under this polyclinic with a sort of reflex theorist um doctor adolf beginski who very much believed that uh, masturbation was physically threatening to the child, um, supported these ideas around, you know, sexual surgeries, um, all of the stuff, although he wasn't himself an advocate of circumcision, if I remember correctly, he was kind of in the same world. And Freud um, studied under him and would have encountered a lot of those kinds of patients, Bonomi kind of demonstrates. Um, And basically... Bonomi thinks that Freud really tried to repress or suppress his um, experience of um, being in that world when he wrote about childhood sexuality. And Bonomi's idea is Freud was actually very repulsed by the idea of these kinds of surgeries. Um, And he had this complicated situation with his patient Emma Eckstein um, involving, you know, the surgery on her nose that nearly killed her. Um, And so basically Bonomi thinks Freud... When, it's, it's quite odd. When Freud writes about um, infantile sexuality, he claims that he has no experience observing children in a medical capacity, and that's demonstrably untrue. So Bonomi is trying to figure out why, why does Freud think this? And he thinks that the kind of specter of genital surgeries is so gruesome to Freud that he really wants to push away that in his own theorizing, but actually it kind of it emerges in some way or it's, it's part of the story of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, also, you know, in, in reading that, I went back and just looked at, looked over an article um, by Karen Starr and Lewis Aaron, Women on the Couch, Genital Stimulation and the Birth of Psychoanalysis. Um, and I just sort of, did you know that one? It's from 2011. It comes out of their book, um, uh, Psychoanalysis for the People. And it's looking at, you know, like that Freud certainly knew how to do massage, and that, um, for, you know, and why were these women on the couch? And what was the idea that, you know, he, they don't say, well, Freud was masturbating his patients, but that in a, in a sense that it, it's, it seemed to me to sort of link up to that particular moment in medical history, right, with like these genital surgeries and these electrotherapies, these vibration therapies, you know, that were... Um, were I, I, it sounds sounds sort of like related in a way to you know to like a like a bridge or something reflex reflex theory like sort of in that in the same neighborhood medically um, it's a, it's an interesting piece you I think you would enjoy it um, because it it dovetails in some ways with uh, you know it's like looking at well what, what was Freud. Um, you know, genital stimulation, a standard practice in the treatment of hysteria. I mean, that, that, that we know, right? And, and Freud, Freud was also, you know, con- 
you know, quite fam- quite familiar. He 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 knew of that. He knew that. I mean, that was, and he turns 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 to- both toward and away <laughs> from it. I think. Yeah, and then there's another piece of the story, of course, that I mentioned is Freud's relationship with Wilhelm Fleece. And Fleece was really interested in this idea of the nasal reflex neurosis. That's what he called it. And the idea that hysteria and neuroses had something to do with some irritation or problem with the nostrils, basically. And then you have um, Sander Gilman kind of bringing out how that whole interest that Freud had in those ideas probably had something to do with the unconscious, uh, well, the anti-Semitism around the Jewish nose, right? And, and, um, and their complicated relationship playing out over uh, you know, Freud's uh, issues with his with anti-Semitism and living in an anti-Semitic society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The nose penis connection. Uh, <laughs> the closest I can get to having a penis is having a nose. That's that's what I that's what seems seems to be the case. And there is nothing better than sneezing. Um, it's very <laughs> like it can be. It, it is it is a thrill, right? So um, anyway, um, the. Something else you bring, uh, okay, th- there's this German case, which was really news to me. I was like, whoa, I, I didn't know this this, uh, this story. Um, I mean, incredible that it's the the Germans. And the idea, I guess, part of what comes through is there, there's a, a a child who is, what, what, what tell the story, a child who's circumcised and there's, a, the mother is Muslim, I think, or, you know. Yeah, it's it's uh, a child. It's based in Cologne, and a Muslim boy is circumcised, and there are some problems. There's some complications, but the child is okay in the end. But nevertheless, the doctors report this as a case of, um, I think, a case of assault, or basically they think there's some kind of something that's gone wrong here, um, and that the do- and they argue that the doctor was maybe not properly qualified. It turns out the doctor was qualified, um, but nevertheless, the uh, prosecution decides to take this to court. And um, it's initially heard in a lower court, which basically decides that um, everything is fine, but then there's an appeal, it gets heard in an upper court. And basically, so the uh, this, this court decides that circumcision um, violates certain basic rights of the child to bodily integrity. Uh, and it's actually the, the law that that basic right that they're basing the decision on is, a, of course, a right that was established post-Holocaust, partially with the idea of preventing the kinds of things um, that happen to Jewish people in mind. Um, so there's a great irony in how that decision gets made. Um, and that creates a tremendous controversy throughout Germany. Like the next day, hospitals stop performing circumcisions. Everything is thrown into sort of legal uncertainty. And um, there's a huge debate uh, about people's views on whether circumcision is ethically, you know, okay or not. Um, But it ultimately is resolved by the German parliament, not by a court, but by the parliament, which passes a resolution, essentially affirming the legality of circumcision. And you have figures like Angela Merkel very um, loudly proclaiming, we cannot be a country that prohibits Jewish rituals. Um, and, and of course, they don't mention, uh, or, or what's kind of sidelined, of course, is that really the people, that the majority of people who this affects are Muslim people, not Jews, because there aren't nearly as many Jews in Germany as there are Muslims. Um, and that gets kind of put to one side. But this is how the whole picture gets painted. Mm-hmm. What's what's so interesting when I was reading um, about the case was this idea that you know parents um, caretakers should try to minimize their impact on children, I, and I was thinking about that in relationship to sort of neoliberalism, right? Like we can just like this the blank slate, you know, and it's certainly like parents, you know, who. Uh, you know, people that, you know, cases I've heard, whatever, people I've treated, well, I've given, you know, I've just given birth to my child and we're, you know, going to give the child a name so that they, a name that they can change their name later. Um, You know, they can uh, choose, you know, choose your gender. You, they can, they, and trying to like clear the way as if, as, as as if as if they could get out of the way. I mean, if we add Laplanche, you know, like you can't get like, sorry, but you know the the fantasy of and you you write a little bit, you know, the the fantasy of you know the, the wish to eliminate the traumatic influence of the other. 
um, as perhaps like the sine qua non of um, of the neoliberal uh, <laughs> neoliberal life, right? Um, how can I how can I make sure um, I'm not I'm not under the influence of anyone else but myself? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really glad you picked up on that kind of political aspect because yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking. Is one of the ways that the court framed the idea of religious freedom was this idea that the child should be able to choose their religion later in life when they're an adult. And if you circumcise them, that places a, uh, a mark on them that marks them forever and that somehow limits their freedom to choose. And that's contrasted um, by some people with baptism as something that doesn't physically mark the child. But, you know, I would argue whether it's a physical mark or not, it, it leaves a pretty big impact, I think, if you're raised Christian or Jewish. <laughs> all, all, of, all of the pictures of me, I was baptized, you know, raised in a, in a, in a Catholic family. I was baptized, and the, the, those photographs are absolutely terrifying. I am so, I'm screaming, and they're pouring water on me, and the adults are all, like, holding me, and I'm in this little white dress, and I'm on the altar, but there's people pouring water on me. And I'm, you know, like, like because like my first encounter probably with like that much water being poured from above on my face from a cup, like what in the world? Like, like water in my nose, like this is not supposed to happen. Am I drowning? You know, and <laughs> actually that's your next book. Okay. Baptism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. That is the sequel to Circumcision. Essentially. <laughs> um, and, yeah. uh, and so there's two things about that. I mean, so there's one, like this idea that somehow the physical mark is more of an impact than a, than a psychical mark of how you're raised. Never mind, as you're elaborating, that baptism is also quite a physical thing. But, um, and then also this other, what you said that I think embedded in this is this fantasy that somehow the best way to raise a child is this kind of neoliberal idea that they have the least impact or the least influence from the other from their parents and caregivers as possible that somehow you know they're just provided the the basic ingredients they need to survive this is my kind of reading of the fancy of it they're, they're given those ingredients but but nothing else and so they can make completely free choices later in life <laughs> or or as, as if as if um then the child will never be angry at the parent you you gave me total and in other words it's sort of like it's it's always stri- it always strikes me as like a little bit defensive like well what if you say no what if you what if you choose a name what if the kid doesn't like the name what if you you know what if you what if you say you know no you have to wear pants today i don't care you know like what, <laughs> whatever it's like you know there, you can't can you can you really avoid um the you know the the sort of the the hatred of a child for a parent <laughs> It, it also it reminds me of what Freud says about the superego that, the, you know, he points out that it's often the children who have very liberal, permissive parents who have the harshest superegos. You know, there's something a bit easier about a parent who, who sort of just makes you do certain things and sets certain rules and maybe subjects you to circumcision or whatever. You have you have something to rebel against. And, right. you know, when, when the parents Take it to the streets. Nice, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, I mean it's right. This I like. It was so startling to read. Like this, we ought to minimize their uh, parents ought to minimize um, their impact on their own children. I was like, oh, what does that look like? Does that look like neglect? Does that look like like what is that actually? You know, or do, what it, you know what it looks like? Like um, you're online at the grocery store, and the kid's like, I wanted this. Well, do you want it this? Or do you want it that way? Do you want it like this? Or you want do you want a green one or you want a blue one? Maybe a yellow one. Which one do you want? And I'm like, this this kid is not gonna make a goddamn choice. And I really need to get out of the store. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm being held hostage by the tyranny of like, let the child choose. And I'm like, just give the kid a yellow one. Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because I would like to get, I'd like to get out of here and go about my day, you know. So that yeah, well, it is like sort of the endless consumer choice, then like refracted into into parenting, right? Right. No, no, to- totally. And I think that you know, um, uh, how do you say Renata Sele? How do you say her name? Uh, Selecal. I, I might not pronounce it right myself, but yeah. Selecal, I think. Selecal. Yeah. yeah. Um, her idea that you you know you include in the book that cutting. Um, there's something about the comfort. Uh, I don't know if this is what she says. You said, but it's like a comfort of irreversibility. That there is sort of the cut cutting cannot be undone. That there is also a comfort in 
there it is. You know, um, it can't, it, it, there's not endless proliferation of, of, of choice of options of, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I look at that actually as, as part of an explanation for why going back to the beginning of this conversation, why some Jews and Muslims feel that they have to do this thing, even if they eat bacon and everything else. And, you know, I think it's a fantasy, but it's a powerful fantasy of this idea that the cut is this irreversible mark that really makes you something. And and maybe in the kind of postmodern world we live in where nothing seems to really hold or cohere, there's this idea that, well, circumcision at least will really give my child an, an identity, a subjectivity against all of the, you know, floating signifiers that surround mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Something to ponder. Um, <laughs> You know, something, something permanent, something, um, something lasting and, and something to, to confront just, of course, just like the end of the session, just like the, you know, there is an end, there is a, there is certain things cannot in this life be undone. And, and what does it mean to not, to not actually really take that in? What kind of a life do you live if you don't take that in? It's a, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm scared if people don't take that in. Um, I guess personally, like, you know, just, it can't, it, you know, it's not, not endless options. Um, mm. Even you know, though, and, I mean, the great thing about the cut is it's also productive, right? It's, it's an totally. ending, but it's also an opening. Right. I'm, I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm filled with longing and loss and thinking about, you know, holding, you know, so much can happen, absolutely, in response to the end. And now I have to say, I think we're also at the end, speaking of the end, the end of the well, end a, of the end. <laughs> the end. The end of the end. Um, so, Jordan, it was terrific to speak with you. It was really super, super pleasurable. Um, and... Um, I, you know, I don't know. Are you working on anything right now? By the way, I like to ask that question. Are you, you have another book <laughs> um, project? Uh, not, not at the moment, another book project, but I am sort of carrying on research into um, ideas around transgender kids and particularly how people in the world of psychoanalysis try to care for them. Um, so that's my, my current project and in some ways relates to my interest in the body and sexuality, even if it's not about circumcision exactly. No, well, certainly, and there's a lot of contemplation of of cutting. Indeed. Um, yeah. So, okay. All right. Well. well um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Thank you, Tracy. It's just such a pleasure to have such a fun conversation with you, as always. But also, I really appreciate how carefully and thoughtfully you, you read the book. It was really nice to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I was. Um, yeah, just happy to interview you. And I was, I mean, just full disclosure, Jordan said, Tracy, will you interview me? And I was like, oh my God, I was so touched. I was like, of course, <laughs> of course I will interview you. It was just, it was so, I don't know, it was so, it was so tender and it's so nice when hosts, um, you know, whatever, put stuff out into the world rather than, you know, just simply doing interviews and and here you go with your book. So um, this is Tracy Morgan signing off from New Books and Psychoanalysis. We've just been with Jordan Osterman discussing his book, Circumcision, on the couch. Until next time. <laughs>